Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, most of what we're going to talk about tonight involves uh, foreign affairs, international diplomacy. Um, the Knesset uh, is finishing its uh, winter session on Thursday, and they're going to go for a two-month uh, break. Um, so we can talk a little bit about what the last few days have seen, but it's certainly not as consequential, let's say, as some of the other things that are happening. We'll start with uh, really some unprecedented um, events, especially which took, uh, took place on Saturdays. We know it's the Jewish Sabbath, and uh, for the first time in Israel's history, we have a religious uh, sitting prime minister and uh, really for the first time in I don't know, maybe ever, uh, we had a prime minister who took an emergency flight on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, um, to go and meet Russia's Vladimir Putin. Um, it's clear that this was a last minute decision, perhaps it was even, well, almost certainly was a last minute uh, invitation. Uh, interestingly enough, or not, he took with him uh, the minister that usually uh, attends meetings with Vladimir Putin, uh, Minister of, um, is it, uh, I know he's Jerusalem and um, I think also construction, Zev Elkin, who's a native Russian speaker. He accompanied uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, on, uh, with, uh, during his meetings with Putin, and he's uh, held the same job to a certain extent with, uh, with Naftali Bennett. So the two of them, with some other officials, got on a plane, uh, went to Russia, sat for over three hours with Vladimir Putin, the only, let's say, uh, Western or certainly democratic uh, leader uh, to have sat with Vladimir Putin uh, since the beginning of the war. Uh, he then uh, travelled uh, to Germany, where he met and had uh, dinner with a German chancellor, and then he made his way back. Uh, what is clear is that uh, Natalie Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, has had numerous conversations, not just with Vladimir Putin, but also with Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky and other world leaders. A lot of attention around the world has been focused on Natalie uh, Bennett's efforts. So what, what exactly is happening? First of all, it is clear that um, Bennett is not really party to the negotiations. What he seems to be doing is relaying messages. Um, perhaps there's been some minor suggestions here and there, but on the whole, uh, it seems like uh, Bennett is not really a party to negotiations and not really necessarily a mediator in so much as he's bringing his own uh, plans to the table, perhaps peace proposals or whatever they are, or, or, you know, uh, proposals how to stop the war, he's relaying messages. He is one of the few, uh, as I said, leaders who is trusted by both parties. Uh, so he has an important role to play. Another one is Turkey, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Israel certainly has a, a unique role. Um, and that is being appreciated not just uh, by Kiev and Moscow, but also by the Americans. Some American officials said that they 
are very happy and satisfied with uh, Bennett's role and they understand uh, why he's doing what he's doing. Um, and but the you know the, the big question is is are these negotiations sincere? Are they serious? Uh, what Bennett has appeared to have transmitted the message um, to the West because uh, what seems to be is the Ukrainians, the Russians are meeting uh, during their negotiations. A lot of what's going on uh, is to a certain extent secretive. Uh, there is a theory that Zelensky uh, doesn't want to tell too much about the progress because he wants to still keep that uh, state of emergency uh, going uh, around the world. Uh, but the message that Bennett is bringing is that uh, Russia would be potentially interested in stopping its advances if certain conditions were met. Obviously, uh, the chief one is that uh, Ukraine would, would not join NATO. In fact, it would declare complete neutrality. Um, it would uh, have to recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea. It would recognize uh, independence or autonomy uh, over the Donbass region and probably uh, reduce its army and several other uh, demands from the Russians. Uh, but it does seem that the Russians are climbing down to a certain extent from uh, from the tree of basically saying that it wanted regime change, because that seemed to be the message from the off uh, from Vladimir Putin that this, what he said, quote unquote, Nazi um, uh, leadership had to be removed. Um, so it does seem like that is no longer necessarily a demand. But again, the fact that an Israeli leader is taking such a central uh, position on the world stage uh, and, you know, is speaking with world leaders, uh, you know, by the hour is certainly not going to harm uh, Naftali Bennett's reputation home or abroad. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, the opposition have been saying since the beginning is Bennett doesn't have their gravitas. Netanyahu was a known uh, uh, force on the international stage and Bennett, no one takes him seriously. Uh, and even when the idea or the suggestion that Bennett completes some role in mediation between uh, Russia and Ukraine, it was laughed at uh, by the opposition. Well, it does seem like uh, uh, the role is being fulfilled. And it's what is also clear is that Bennett is able to discuss other issues, uh, especially while he was in Moscow. And as I, I talked about last week, some of the most pressing issues for Israel is what's going on in Syria, the fact that uh, they need to um, maintain the right uh, to uh, fly over Syria and take out senior Iranian Hezbollah uh, terrorist leaders um, and uh, ensure that many of the weapons, uh, you know, uh, high-level weapons cache that are uh, being moved from Syria to Lebanon are, are not able to reach their destination. And that's crucial for Israel's security and the safety and well-being of its citizens. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, uh, a couple of days ago or yesterday, Israel uh, took out uh, uh, what we now know are two senior officers in the Iranian Revolutionary Guards uh, in Syria. And the Iranians, for the first time in quite a while, actually acknowledged uh, uh, their, their rank and even held an official ceremony with some very high uh, ranking Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, have promised retribution. And uh, the Israel uh, Defense and Security Agencies are certainly taking that seriously. Uh, so there is expected to be some attempts, maybe from Hezbollah in the north, maybe from Syria itself, maybe from Iran, maybe against Jewish or Israeli uh, targets around the world. Uh, but uh, the Iranians have promised some sort of retribution because these were relatively high uh, profile uh, Iranian revolutionary guards. 
Um, so that's another issue which I'm sure uh, Natalia Bernick brought up. Obviously, another issue which seemed to have sort of stalled to a certain extent are the return to the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear um, negotiations in Vienna. Um, Israel obviously has taken this opportunity to make its case to Russia. It's made its case very strongly in the past and uh, perhaps even more strongly in the West. And uh, Russia and China, as we know, are more uh, sympathetic to the Iranian cause and have certainly um, been the, you know, in the Iranians' corner, let's just say, uh, far more um, than some of the other members of the P5 plus one. So there was a tremendous opportunity also for Naftali Bennett to make uh, his case there. And it does seem that the Russian interest is at this moment to at least create some problems uh, for the negotiations. Uh, they have uh, raised some concerns about some of the uh, sanctions um, that are being laid against Russia and connected to, them to the return to the JCPOA, because obviously there are certain factors, perhaps there, there's talk of some of the Iranian leave, leaving, leading, leaving sorry, um, Iran and perhaps going to Russia, and how does that fit in with sanctions? So it does seem that the Russians, whether because of Bennett, whether because of their own interests, which is probably more likely, have put a small, let's just say it's a small spanner in the works. Certainly, uh, we're waiting to see what happens. Uh, at the moment, the Iranian negotiators have been called home uh, to Tehran, uh, and we don't know when the next round will be, but the, the West, or uh, you know, most of the P5 plus one, I uh, believe that, uh, as does Israel, that uh, the negotiations are coming uh, to an end and an agreement is pretty much uh, uh, going to be signed in the coming days or coming weeks. Obviously, the situation with Russia does complicate things, but uh, there's still optimism on that. The big uh, story of today was, uh, for the first time in 13 years, uh, a senior Israeli leader, uh, President uh, Herzog, uh, visited Ankara in what has been uh, dubbed a reset or a U-turn in relations with Turkey, as we know, for at least since probably 2008. Uh, some people uh, look at 2008, uh, um, when uh, then Prime Minister Ehud Olmert came back from visiting uh, President uh, Erdogan in Turkey, and then a couple of days later launched Operation Cast Lead, which uh, the Turks uh, claim embarrassed them, or the 2010 Mavi Marmara, uh, the flotilla affair, or many other uh, moments that we could talk about. The relations between uh, Ankara and Jerusalem have been extremely difficult. Um, and uh, there have been other attempts at some sort of reconciliation or resets. They've all failed. But there is a feeling that this is different. Uh, the reasons are potentially numerous. First of all, uh, the economy in Turkey is on freefall. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, they have hyperinflation and uh, they need uh, to take a slightly different path. They've been trying to make new friends or remake um, old ties in the region. Uh, the Emirates and some of the other Sunni regions, which have been seen more as foes in recent years. And Israel is an important part of that. Also because Israel itself has made uh, important ties with some of the uh, leading Sunni nations in the region. Uh, Turkey obviously felt that there was a need to get back on side with Israel. Um, it also, looking to uh, the US, uh, there's long been this belief in Turkey uh, that it, you know if you want to have better relations with the uh, Americans, then you have to go through Jerusalem. Um, 
perhaps there's some truth to it or not. Uh, certainly, President Biden hasn't been over complimentary uh, towards uh, President Erdogan. Perhaps that's uh, also uh, it's a sort of a score settles when uh, President Obama in the past, uh, you know, tried to reach out and said that President Erdogan was uh, one of the one of his closest allies and certainly wasn't reciprocated. Uh, so perhaps there's some leftover tension there. Um, but uh, there's an understanding that Israel is here to stay and Israel is an important player. Uh, another word which has been bandied around a lot is gas. Um, as, as we've talked about quite a lot, that Israel uh, has, Israel is part of this uh, sort of uh, uh, tri-nation uh, Eastern Mediterranean pipeline, which at the moment isn't getting off the ground uh, because of finance reasons. Also, the Biden administration took back its support for it. Um, but there's still momentum on it and there's still talks on it. And it's certainly no coincidence that uh, President Herzog visited uh, Cyprus and Greece before he went to Turkey, perhaps to alleviate any concerns there, because as we know, they are regional rivals, especially Greece and Turkey. So he wanted to allay any concerns that uh, a rapprochement between Israel and Turkey won't come at uh, the cost of relations uh, with either of these countries. Uh, Turkey has talked about, and President Erdogan talked today during the press conference, that they would certainly like to be a partner to this uh, pipeline. And uh, so these are some of the reasons why uh, President uh, uh, Herzog was in Ankara today. Um, it was more ceremonial uh, than anything else. As we know, um, the president of Israel is more ceremonial uh, position. He's the head of state. But it does seem that that is where uh, President Erdogan has felt more comfortable with, uh, with this reset. And it started as soon as um, President Herzog was uh, initiated into office. Um, and what probably most was talked about today um, was how to reset relations and how to ensure that any diplomatic troubles that come up in the future, because there'd be many and there potentially will be many in the future, can be resolved without these major public spats. As we know that um, uh, President Erdogan sees himself as a leader in the Muslim world. So he, you know, any time that there's any sort of flare up around Jerusalem and especially the Temple Mount, he sees it as his uh, responsibility to act on it. As, as we know, just in the last few years, he's called Israel a terrorist state. He's compared it to Hitler. Uh, all sorts of uh, terrible and damning uh, statements have been released. Uh, so today was, was quite a reset to have, you know, the Israeli national anthem, the Israeli flag flying throughout Ankara to have this very impressive, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, change of the guard and everything that went into this celebratory moment. So it's clear that uh, Turkey do want this reset. It's not suddenly because, uh, because they become lovers of Israel, but because, as I said, for, for other reasons. Interestingly enough, uh, some of the terrorist organizations in our neighborhood have reacted quite negatively to it. Uh, unsurprisingly, Hamas, who do have offices in Ankara, and that's certainly something that the Israeli interlocutors have talked about. Uh, there are reports that Hamas have been told by their Turkish hosts that they have to uh, perhaps at least uh, keep a low profile, but some have suggested they may even be told to move on. Uh, you know, Hamas have opened bureaus uh, around the region, have moved on depending on the needs and what's going on in the region. But uh, if Turkey would tell Hamas to move on and move out of its uh, territory, that would be a major strategic uh, bl uh, blow for the organization and, and a great win for Israel. 
so it remains to be seen. Finally, uh, and related to many of the other things going on in the region, the chief of staff, Israel's chief of staff, uh, Kohavi, was in Bahrain, uh, which is also very telling, a uh, very interesting moment uh, to talk about defense and security relations. Again, very much with what's going on in the background behind uh, many of these events, Iran, um, and the fact that this was happening while the JCPOA discussions were ongoing, while Iran's many proxies were continuing their war against uh, Sunni nations, the fact that openly, not far from Iran itself, here was the Israel chief of staff sitting in the Bahraini capital meeting with the most senior defense and security officials uh, in the country was certainly a message to Tehran, one that they wouldn't enjoy, but certainly one that this growing alliance between Israel and the pragmatic Sunni nations uh, in the Gulf and beyond uh, uh, are telling not just Iran, but also other actors in the region below, uh, beyond. With that, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions you may have on any of these issues or anything else. Thank you so much. First one we have in that I feel like sums up a lot of this is uh, Ayala Haq asks, do we really trust Erdogan? Probably not. Um, you know, as I said, we're talking about only a few months ago, uh, perhaps a year ago, I think it was during the last operation, which was in May, if I'm not much mistaken, where you know we, uh, Israel was called a terrorist state. Uh, but the world has changed and Turkey has changed and the Turkish economy more than anything else has changed. And don't forget, <clears throat> during that time, we've seen the Biden administration come in, uh, lay down its foreign policy. We've seen Israel really cement ties in the region. We've seen uh, it, not just in the Gulf, but also uh, with Greece and Cyprus and Turkey have certainly felt more isolated uh, and they need uh, some assistance. They need, um, you know, to, to help out their, their flailing economy. They need better uh, relations. They need to be seen more as a positive force than a negative force, as they've been seen in recent years uh, by many. And the comments against Israel, uh, you know, uh, certainly won't be uh, been seen well in Europe even if they're critical of Israel's um, you know, uh, conflict uh, with, with uh, terrorist organizations in Gaza, certainly the language that has come out, and the, even the overt anti-Semitism which has come out, even by the way in the last few days uh, from some in the inner circle of Erdogan, has certainly given uh, Israel pause uh, for thought. But it's clear that today the main ceremonies, the main events, the optics of it are certainly positive has, as, as everyone uh, on the Israeli media said tonight, has Erdogan become a Zionist overnight? Absolutely not. So, but this is certainly, uh, you know, this, poor, this cause for celebration today um, because there is hope that this reset will be a proper reset. Let's talk about the, um, the Turkish foreign minister coming uh, in the next few weeks. Let's talk about the return of ambassadors, uh, the Israeli one to Ankara, the Turkish one uh, to Tel Aviv. Um, so there's certainly cause for a lot of optimism, uh, but Israel will certainly uh, understand that it's not because he's suddenly become a lover of Israel or Zionism. Um, so they'll take everything with a pinch of salt, but there, there's, there's great optimism that comes along with that. Thank you. Sandra Bellastruno asks, what do you make of Russian comments regarding non-recognition of the Golan and directing these comments to Tel Aviv instead of Jerusalem? 
Well, the second part is nothing new. Only a few countries in the world recognized uh, Jerusalem as the capital. So uh, most nations in the world, when they refer to Israel's capital, they, they refer to Tel Aviv, which is obviously bizarre. You know, it's one thing if you don't want to recognize Jerusalem, but to decide our capital is somewhere else, you know, any leader who comes to Israel, if they want to go to the president's office, the prime minister's office, the Knesset, or the other ministries, they come to Jerusalem. You know, there's not to say there's nothing in Tel Aviv, but uh, certainly not our capital, but we, Israel is used to that. Um, but as I said, uh, I think last week, that message was sent at a very crucial time uh, in the war for, uh, for, for, for Russia, and they wanted to send a message that we're watching how you respond to Israel, as I said, because Israel has a relatively unique uh, place uh, to play. And the fact that they don't recognize the Golan, again, the vast majority of the world do not recognize Israel's sovereignty on the Golan, especially as they are being hosted in Syria, or rather it depends who really is the host, but uh, you know they are next door in Syria and they have very close relations with Assad. So they're not going to recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan. Um, so there's nothing particularly new. Uh, I think it was it, it got a lot of attention because of the wording at a time where Russia was invading a sovereign country itself. So I think there was a you know that the, the the seeming hypocrisy of the statement was what made it unique, but the sentiment itself is certainly not unique. Understood. Thank you, Eric. Asks with the West desperate for oil, do you fear that could push the West to make a bad Iran deal? Uh, can Israel help the West with their natural gas holdings or help increase Saudi output? Well, there's a worry regardless of what happened in Russia, uh, in Ukraine, that uh, a bad deal was coming. I mean, Israel does believe it's a bad deal. It's certainly not longer and stronger. Um, so it, it's it, it's not really dependent on it. In fact, if anything, the, the conflict could actually, as I said, put a minor spanner in the works, could perhaps... Uh, make some they, they could Russians could make some problems with it now because you know it is a place where they're sitting down with the West while the West are sanctioning uh, Russia and taking all sorts of measures against it in Vienna the, the the parties are sitting down together so you know the Russians are not one to miss an opportunity uh, for these sort of things so it wouldn't surprise me if um, if they seek to gain something out of these uh, negotiations so if anything it could make, uh, the signing of a deal, it could push it back a little bit, um, but we'll have to see. As far as the energy issue, um, listen, the, the energy issue is an issue, you know, uh, from what I understand, Europe receives at least 10% of its uh, energy from, from Russia, and where do you get a lot of the other energy is in the Middle East. A lot of it goes through the, um, the, the straits where Iran has a lot of control, so certainly uh, it could de uh, destabilize. Interestingly enough, there was reports today that um, uh, that uh, the Saudis and the Emirati leaders have not been taking President Biden's calls for a few weeks. Uh, there is uh, an idea that uh, to try and offset uh, what uh, the West get from Russia to try and uh, you know sort of get it from the Middle East. And as we know, uh, President Biden, when he came into office, certainly didn't continue the close relationship that the Americans had with some of the Gulf states. Uh, so now to suddenly turn around and say, well, we need you now. Certainly uh, this is emboldened some in the region and they want to know what they're going to get because at the moment, they before this, they felt very much frozen out 
uh, from the US and now it appears that the US need them. So these are all, certainly these are all elements that the Iranians will be watching, the Saudis will be watching, other Gulf states will be watching because all of these events are, are, appear to be really tied in at the moment. Thank you. Uh, Lois asks, how many Ukrainian refugees have arrived in Israel for asylum or residence? Uh, what documents are waived require, or, or required under these emergency conditions? It's it's not clear, or at least if it is clear, it's not clear to me uh, and to many. Um, anyone who can make Aliyah uh, can immigrate to Israel under the law of return, can do so anyway. They have to prove uh, documentation. Uh, there, there was a report tonight that Israel expects as much as 50,000 uh, new immigrants from... It's not clear if it's only from Ukraine. Maybe there'll be other uh, Baltic states that will also feel that maybe Israel's a safer bet. Perhaps also some Russian uh, Jews will make Aliyah, perhaps uh, also related to what's going on. Uh, but the fact that 50,000 would be coming uh, when only around 20,000 or maybe a little bit more uh, make Aliyah every year would certainly be a massive amount. And people are talking about the economic uh, uh, cost of uh, uh, such a massive increase in Aliyah, whether it would play into uh, a lot of other, the cost of living, and the, they're trying to lower the cost of property at the moment, which is just not working. Um, so it certainly cost Israel a lot of money. Um, they, uh, from what I understand, Israel has uh, set a, a number, I think it's 20 to 25,000 people that's willing to accept who are not able to make Aliyah. In other words, they are not Jewish or have one Jewish grand parent, which uh, from what I understand is the highest uh, per capita, uh, you know, refugee cap that's pretty much anywhere in the world outside of those uh, neighboring countries to Ukraine itself. So Israel is prepared to do quite a lot, uh, it seems to help refugees uh, that can make it to Israel. Thank you. Uh, Michael Ginsburg asks, what is your opinion of Robert Malley, the U.S. chief negotiator for the present Iran deal? Didn't he also negotiate the 2015 JCPOA? Uh, I hear he's not a fan of Israel's statement. <laughs> I'm not going to get too personal about any, any particular individual, but it's, I, I, all I can say is in, in, in Israel, there was a cause for concern when in January, um uh one of the senior negotiators actually three well one senior negotiator and two lower down negotiators uh suddenly resigned uh these particular negotiators represented a more hawkish approach uh to the uh negotiations and the fact that they resigned certainly gave mali uh more power he is seen as a more dovish wing uh within negotiators and the fact that his opposition within the negotiating team appear to you know basically break away then they weren't happy about what's happening uh, and, and how far the us and the west in general were going certainly gave israel a lot of cause of concern and there's been endless commentary about exactly what that means uh, but the fact that we are here today where it seems that we're on the verge of a return to the jcpoa um, is certainly something which uh, bothers israel um, some commentators are certainly um, pointed fingers at uh, Mali uh, as someone who was involved in the original JCPOA, which Israel did not like in the first place, but certainly return um, to the JCPOA under what Israel would see as very weak conditions is certainly um, something that Israel is, is very concerned about and has made it clear to the US and, and others. Thank you. 
So an anonymous attendee asked, will Putin try to recruit experienced Syrian or Hezbollah fighters to fight alongside Chechen special for forces in the Ukraine? Uh, the existing forces, raw Russian conscripts, uh, have taken very he heavy casualties, estimated as high as 10,000. Well, it's, it's not something I'm obviously privy to, but I have seen these reports. Um, it, it, it would make sense, though the Syrian army is certainly not the most professional army uh, in the world. And the fact that, uh, you know, without uh, foreign assistance, whether Russian or I Iranian, uh, Syria would have fallen a long time ago. Uh, so I'm not sure what he'd get out of that, perhaps more manpower, but it does seem that... Uh, that there is an interest in uh, looking for more recruits because the Russians are taking more casualties than they originally thought. And there's even talk of as much as 10% of the army has already been degraded during this war. And a follow-up from Haya Gil. Uh, should Israel expect obstacles by Russia and Syria when it tries to hit Iran there? Iran there. Well, the, I mean, the fact that even in the last couple of days, Israel has flown various sorties over Syria. Uh, you know, uh, the Russians again are keeping to the, you know, the 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 uh, uh, basically keeping to to what's happened before that Israel will be able to, as long as it doesn't target obviously Russians or Russian assets. Uh, it maintains the right to fly over. It has to let the Russians know, and there's you know there's obviously. Uh, a worry that uh, that either could get in the uh, each could get in the other's way, uh, but Israel still uh, apparently maintains the ability to fly in and take out uh, Iranian Hezbollah assets. As I said last week, this isn't just in Israel's interest; this is also in Russia because Russia wants to weaken the Iranian presence uh, in Syria. All right, well, with 10 seconds left, I guess we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. And for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with David Cook discussing Islamic studies today, challenges and trends. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.